At one point during Super Bowl 51, the Pats had a 0.02% chance of winning the game. Not 2%, 0.02%. This was halfway through the third quarter. The Patriots were trailing the Falcons by a stupid margin, 28-3. If you'd put money on the Pats to win, you were probably feeling pretty miserable. At worst, the gambling odds for the Pats were 16-1. to 1. And there was a lot of money at stake. Just ask Doug Kazarian, host of the ESPN Gambling Show, The Daily Wager. You're looking north of $4 billion just in America, total bet on the Super Bowl alone. Some of that $4 billion was bet before the game started. But there was also in-game betting, where the odds changed in real time. When they're down 28 to 3, you have to think, can the Patriots come back? Do they have the horses? Do they have the defense? Do they have the offense? So you're assessing the potential of a crazy outcome because that's what you need for it, the bet to win. We've seen crazy outcomes from Pat's quarterback Tom Brady before. He's mastered the comeback. But coming back from this, even for a true believer like me, it felt downright impossible. We never had a team down more than 10 come back and win the Super Bowl before that. So you're not anticipating something like that because when you're at the Super Bowl, you have the best of the best facing one another. Usually good teams, a really great team playing in the Super Bowl doesn't blow a lead. That Falcons game, it wasn't the first time that Brady faced long odds. In fact, in a lot of his previous playoff games, he'd had win probabilities in the low single digits. I'm talking like 7%, 4%. But Brady and the Pats? kept winning. And in Super Bowl 51, they did it again. So is Brady magic? Or do we just have the idea of probability all wrong? I'm Gotham Chopra. From Religion of Sports and ESPN Plus, this is Man in the Arena, a 10-part companion podcast to the docuseries of the same name. Here, we're looking at Tom Brady through the eyes of players and coaches, fans and haters, people whose dreams he's either ruined or made come true, including me. Each episode looks at Tom's impact inside and outside the arena, using sports to explore bigger questions about the world and ourselves. Three, two, one, let's go. This episode, probability. We're going to look at how probability and risk influence how we make decisions, especially when the odds are against us. Because as Tom has shown us over and over again, there's a difference between impossible and improbable. After the break. And we're back. So when the Pats were down to the Falcons at 28-3 debacle, I actually wasn't thinking about the odds. I was thinking about comforting my son. Because we were at that game, in the stands, and it was his first Super Bowl that I'd ever brought him to. I mean, we're going to lose. No one comes back from that. Not in a Super Bowl, really not in any game. So my son, he's devastated. And I'm trying to find a silver lining for him. His uncle, my wife's brother, grew up in Georgia. He's a huge Falcons fan. So I was like, listen, you can't win them all. But you know what? Uncle Bert's going to be happy. That's a good thing, right? I also remember telling him that sort of tired line that doesn't matter whether you win or lose, just showing up, that's what matters. I mean, Tom's still a champion because he's going to leave it all out on the field. That's what matters. And that's sort of a cliche, something that Little League coaches might say. 
you know, give it all you got. But in that moment, maybe I was talking more strategically than I thought. Once you know you have nothing left to lose, you know, if you know your game well, then you're going you're gonna to do whatever it takes. That's Alessandro Bonatti. He's an associate professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. There, he studies something called game theory. It's a scientific um, approach to, uh, to strategy. So thinking systematically about not just your own moves and what you were going to do, but in fact, more so about what your opponents, your competitors, and what they want to do. Bonatti's field is applied economics. His research focuses on how different industries use competitive strategies. But that's not the only way he thinks about game theory. See, Bonatti grew up in Italy, but he's a Pats fan. Thanks to apparently one very formative year he spent living in Connecticut in middle school. And so when I moved to the U.S. in 2003, um, I already knew who I was cheering for. I mean, in fact, I was watching the Super Bowls from Italy uh, growing up. So, of course, Bonatti was also watching the Pats-Falcons game. When the Patriots were trailing by 25 points, Bonatti, the fan, was not too happy. But to Bonatti, the game theorist? I mean, this was exciting. This is his area of research unfolding in real time. See, football is so steeped in game theory that Bonatti uses it to teach his students. Definitely the, um, the more structured uh, just nature of American football means that there's, you know, there's a lot more room for, uh, for strategizing, for, for micromanaging from the sidelines, you know, sort of calling every play in the quarterback's head. That means Bonatti can dissect every decision, every play call in a game. He can pick apart a coach's game plan. You know, that branching decision tree of how they'll approach each choice. Definitely on Sundays, I see a lot of game theory on the field. And, and I think there are many coaches that would recognize that, they are, uh, that they're applying some of these principles. But, you know, being a good strategist or, or, or a good manager, um, you know, involves thinking strategically to a very large degree. So Bonatti says there are three main game theory concepts NFL coaches have in mind when thinking about what their opponents will do. So number one is, can I forecast them? Number two is, can I react to them? Uh, you know, take what the defense gives you. And lastly, can I control what my opponents will do? Sometimes you hear commentators say, oh, that team is trying to establish the run so that they can pass. Right? You want to make sure that the defense is going to try and stop your run because you want to make it seem like you're going to do that all day. Uh, and that, create, you know, that opens up space in the, um, in the secondary, makes it easier to complete a pass. Right? So, so that is quite different from predicting. It's different from reacting. It's you trying to dictate uh, the evolution of the game. Predicting, reacting, and dictating is not just for sports, though. Corporations, politicians, and gamblers are constantly using game theory. And if you have kids, they're probably trying basic game theory on you. You know, my, my kids don't know that, but they, they are playing games with me when they try and ask for, you know, extra snacks or, uh, or permission to stay up later. They manage their own reputation. They, they try to, you know, push the right buttons. Uh, you know, they, they have it very clear that they're doing things, anticipating and trying to steer my reaction. One important concept in game theory is risk. Risk versus reward. So in the Patriots versus Falcons game, Bonatti says, this calculation was different for each team. I think it's a well-established pattern in sports. 
that um, you know whoever is ahead is going to play a little more conservatively, and whoever is behind is going to play more aggressively. And you know that is simply because if you know if nothing changes, whoever is ahead is going to win. So look, when we talk about someone who has a statistically very, very small chance of winning, leaving it all out on the field, like I told my son at that Pats-Falcons game, that's actually describing an aspect of game theory at work. If you're behind, you should take bigger and bigger risks, trying things that you wouldn't normally try. To see how this plays out, let's leave the NFL for a bit and look at what many people call the greatest high school football game ever played. In Texas, uh, football is king. Uh, it's kind of like a religion. And uh, people, you know, in small towns, they just, they close down businesses. They, they lock up shop. They, they leave signs in town that says, last one out, turn off the lights. That's Scott Phillips, the former coach of the Plano East Panthers in Plano, Texas, on the outskirts of Dallas. Back in 1994, in the game we're talking about, Coach Phillips' 12-0 Panthers went up against the 12-0 Lions of John Tyler High School, a team that, by the way, was stacked. They are so physical and so fast, and uh, we knew we were in for a war and uh, didn't, didn't know if we could even stay on the field with them. They had so much talent. The first three quarters were pretty close. As the fourth quarter started, the score was Lions 24, Panthers 17. The difference was just one touchdown. But then the Lions went on a rampage. Thanks to a field goal and a few turnovers, they took a 41-17 lead with only three minutes left. 3-0-3 left in the contest. I'm telling you, people are going to pick up the newspaper on Sunday morning. They're going to say, what a route that was. You had to be here. In football, there are only a few key situations where risk and reward are very obvious. And one of them is the onside kick. The risky onside kicks are a part of football. Anytime a team is down, you, you have to get the ball back. And the only way you can get the ball back is for to kick it 10 yards and get it before they get it. At stake, if you don't execute it, your opponent gets the ball in very good scoring position. There's a reason teams don't do this every single time, because it usually doesn't work. But with nothing to lose and everything to gain, Coach Phillips and the Panthers went for it and recovered it and then scored a touchdown. But then they pushed their luck. They tried it again and again, kick recovered, drove down the field for a touchdown. At this point, it seemed impossible this tactic could actually work again. Folks, can the improbable happen three times? It's gonna happen, man. It's gonna Come happen, on, baby. But for the third time, onside kick, recovery, touchdown. Oh, it's open. They got it again. They got it again. Good gosh, oh, everybody, don't believe it. This is unbelievable. Holy shit! The Panthers took the lead. I mean, this feels like the equivalent of flipping a coin a hundred times and getting heads every single time. Coach for 40 years, I never seen, never been a part of a team getting two onside kicks in a game. That's Lions coach Alan Wilson, who was standing there stunned on the opposing sideline. So the idea of somebody getting three was, was unheard of. Coach Phillips tasted victory. We kicked the extra point, 
and we go ahead 44 to 41 with uh, 26 seconds to go in the game. I thought, well, we've come back and won the game. I was elated, and uh, so was all our fans and all our players because the probability of them scoring in the last few seconds of the game was almost none. Almost none. Not none. Just almost. As improbable as the Panthers' own comeback had been. The Panthers kicked the ball away, and the Lions kick returner caught it at the three-yard line and returned it 97 yards for a touchdown. God bless those kids. I, I'm sick. I want to throw up. Lions won the game oh by a score God. of 48 to 44. Here's Lions coach Alan Wilson again. Today, he's mostly proud that his team just didn't give up. They stayed out there. They made another play uh, to win the game. So I, I praise both sides. I praise Coach Phillips for what his kids did for not quitting on the game, and I praise us, our guys, for not quitting in the last 24 seconds to go make a play. As for Coach Phillips and his Panthers? The wind went out of the sails from being totally elated in one moment to 10 seconds later being the lowest of low, from the highest of high to the lowest of low in about 10 seconds. And uh, that's the only way to describe it. When I got to the locker room after the game, they were all crying. It was just tears. You can hear the disappointment in Coach Phillips' voice. After a quarter of a century, he's still thinking about where the Panthers went wrong. Did they take too many risks? Not enough? But Professor Bonatti from MIT says Coach Phillips performed exactly as game theorists would have predicted. A lot of this has to do with, okay, what happens if I don't take the risk? In sports, uh, I'm going to claim that the downside risk is somewhat limited. Uh, you know, if you don't take a risk and nothing changes, well, you're going to lose because you're behind now. And there's, um, yeah, it's, it's worse to get blown out and to lose by a little bit. But by and large, you're trying to win. Uh, you're trying to catch up. After the break, the game theory behind the Patriots come from behind victory and what most of us get wrong about probability. Plus, we run the odds on Tom himself. Tom Brady is an extremely improbable individual in sports history. That's coming up. Okay, welcome back. Down 28 to three in the third quarter. That's what was happening against the Falcons. It sucked, it was horrible. There was no way we were gonna win this game. But you know what? According to game theorists, that's the kind of situation where you need to take bigger and bigger risks. Remember Coach Scott Phillips in Plano and the three onside kicks? That's the mentality that was needed in the second half of the Pats-Falcons game. The Pats took a bunch of risks. Some of them didn't work, like having wide receiver Julian Edelman throw a pass and trying for one of those notoriously tricky onside kicks. But you know what? Some of those risks did pay off. 
by executing not one but two two-point conversions. Another relatively chancy play. But the Pats had to take those risks, or else they were definitely going to lose. I mean, they had a 0.02% chance of winning, remember? But as we said at the top of this episode, that wasn't the first time that Brady and the Pats had faced long odds. Tom Brady is an extremely improbable individual in sports history. And I went through and looked at all of his fourth quarter comebacks in the playoffs. That's Neil Payne, a senior writer for the data reporting outfit 538. We brought him on to help us understand how often this kind of thing happens to Tom and how he responds. But a lot of Brady's comebacks have also been in the single-digit win probabilities, if you look at the models, like the comeback against San Diego in 2007, they were down to under 8% at their lowest point. That's the game where Tom threw a pick, but then wide receiver Troy Brown forced a fumble on the intercepting player, and the Pats somehow won. This was one of many heart attacks I had in the early Patriots dynasty years, but it was worth it. And then... The tuck rule game, they're down to about 7% at their low point in the fourth quarter. Tuck rule game? Around here, we like to call that the snowball game. The snowball, which is what most uh, New England fans refer to it as. I think the, uh, the rest of the country calls it the tuck rule game. Whatever you call it, it was one of Tom's and the Patriots' earliest comebacks. Yeah, that was the, the first sort of genesis of the Brady Coming back from insurmountable situations or kind of things looking really bleak and desperate and kind of coming out of that. And then in the 2014 season, there was the Super Bowl against the Seahawks. They were down 10 in the fourth quarter, only had about a 3 to 4% chance of winning. So again and again and again, we've seen Brady sort of take these situations that seem almost hopeless, practically hopeless, and be able to just find a way to win. So what do we make of this? Is Tom magic? Is he winning games he's not supposed to? Or are we misunderstanding something? Generally speaking, I think our brains are not really wired to think about probability. And we really tend to think about certainty. And so when something has like a high chance of happening, even if it's not that much above 50%, say it's like 60, 70, 75 or whatever, we start to kind of equate that with 100%. And then at the other end of the spectrum, if there's like a 25% chance, we start to equate that with 0%. We don't even do this consistently, Payne says. Like we tend to overestimate the chance of something bad happening. I mean, are you like me that you think about sharks every time you go swimming in the ocean? This might be some primal instinct at work. As humans, we're conditioned to be very risk-averse, and that has served us really well, evolutionarily speaking. Early humans, if they saw some rustling in some grass, you could think about what's the probability that it's a small animal and maybe I could kill it to eat it, but then what's the probability that it's like a bear or something like that? And you're like, well, you know, if it's a bear and I don't get away from it, I'm going to be really screwed. And so is the downside of that, even if maybe the chance of there being a bear back there is actually kind of low, that maybe the downside is so great that 
I just don't want to risk it. The other thing we get wrong about probability, when we think that something is really, really unlikely, we can lose motivation. We tend to think of things that are really improbable as practically being impossible. And that, I think, sometimes colors our decision to even try because, you know, nobody wants to pour effort uh, into something that is seems futile and really kind of get their heart broken when it doesn't work out. So what can we learn from Tom Brady and his uncanny ability to come back? That, I think, can be a lesson to all of us really to like not give up because it would have been easy for him in a lot of these games to just be like, hey, you know, uh, we don't have it, guys. It's not going to happen for us. And instead, he was like, let's just let's just keep going and see what happens. For Tom, it seems like he understands that a small chance is not the same as zero chance. I mean, it's not magic. It's math. Listen, I remember being in the stands And like looking at the clock, considering how much time is left, figuring out on average, how many times are we going to get the ball back? Which means every time we score, we're going to have to go for the two-point conversion. And look, you don't get two-point conversions that often. It doesn't happen. Everything had to go right for this comeback to happen. Honestly, sitting here, thinking about it, I still can't believe it actually did happen. And that, that's what makes watching his comebacks so thrilling. Because you're seeing these big risks getting taken. Of course, as a fan, you don't really have anything personal at stake. Well, unless you put your money where your mouth is. We talked to Doug Kazarian about all of this. He's the gambling podcast host we heard at the beginning of this show. He says that gambling can be a way for us all to feel a little more, maybe literally, invested in the game. It comes down to anything in life. It's dopamine, right? It's fun because it it's a game of chance and people like reward. But it can also offer a crash course in probability, especially in games like the Pats-Falcons Super Bowl. It's a nice reminder that even in the biggest stage with the best teams involved, Crazy stuff can happen. Anything goes and there's no kind of lock and nothing's guaranteed and the game still has to be played. The games do have to be played. But of course, usually teams don't come back in those situations, which is what makes it so exciting to put a bet on the underdog and then get a huge payday. As for Tom, he doesn't gamble, but he does always bet on himself. And I wonder if that's because his whole career is kind of improbable. As we all know, as we've mentioned on the show before, and as sports media will seemingly never let us forget, Brady was not a first-round draft pick. But Payne says that we may still be missing something in this often-told story. I don't think we really appreciate just how rare it is for a sixth-round draft pick to really have any kind of career, especially any kind of like meaningful NFL career. Payne actually crunched the numbers for us. There have been 9,148 players who were drafted in the sixth round or later since 1950. Of those, only 324, or 3.5%, started even 100 games in the NFL. Only six started 200 or more games in the NFL, or 0.07%. And only one 
has started 300 or more games in his career, and that is Tom Brady. So to me, it really, like, we throw around that idea of the six-round draft pick as being part of the story, but it's just, like, ridiculously improbable that this guy would become the, the best ever. And really, the fact that any of us are here at all is kind of statistically improbable. I mean, first, there are the odds that your parents even met each other. And then the odds that, you know, one particular sperm met one particular egg. And then apply those odds to your parents and their parents and their parents. An author named Dr. Ali Benazir once ran the math on this, and it turns out that the odds of you being you and me being me or Tom being Tom are about, well, it's very, very, very close to zero. Look, compared to that, the odds that face Tom and the Pats in that Super Bowl seem much easier to overcome. Back in the stands at that game, watching them complete that comeback, I remember tears in my eyes, kind of shrugging and telling my son, I mean, I guess I was wrong. You can win them all. Today, I actually think about that Super Bowl win more from a storytelling place. Because if I scripted a story that included a quarterback who had to start a season the four-game suspension, and then, as really happened, had to deal with his mom being diagnosed with and treated for cancer. She's fine, by the way, amazingly. And then led the greatest comeback in the history of the entire Super Bowl? If I scripted a story with a main character that's done everything Tom has done, well, my editors and all of you would say, get the fuck out of here. That's not believable. That could never happen. It's entirely improbable. And yet, here we are, no matter the odds, playing on. On our next episode, we get real about social media. Man in the Arena is a religion of sports production in partnership with ESPN+. I'm Gotham Chopra, the host and creator. Our senior producers are Isaac Kestenbaum and Josephine Holzman of Future Projects. This episode was produced by Buffy Gorilla. Our story editor is Michael Garofalo. Executive producers are Amit Sunkran and Adam Schlossman. Associate producers Iggy Monda and Megan Coyle. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. This episode was mixed by Merritt Jacob and for ESPN+, Plus, Brian Lockhart, Senior Vice President, Original Content and ESPN Films, Lindsay Ravenio, executive producer, ESPN Plus Originals. Tori Champagne, producer, ESPN Plus Originals. Julia Lowry Henderson, senior editorial producer. Riley Bloom, production assistant. Lastly, special thanks to Jessica Popovac, Steve Nelson, Carly Peruccio, composer Michael Kramer, PRX, and Row Home Productions. 